The race to replace Andrew Scheer as federal conservative leader is now on. Monday marked the official start of the leadership contest, which will culminate in a leadership vote in Toronto on June 27th. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. We talk with the National Post's Brian Platt about how the race may look different than the 2017 leadership contest that Shaw Scheer best, Maxime Bernier, and why the party wants to make it that way. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your audio. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Brian, when the Conservative Party of Canada selects a new leader this June, the race will have looked considerably different from the race that saw Andrew Scheer elected leader back in 2017. Why is that? The Conservative Party is, uh, I think, pretty unanimously, at least the leadership of the party, pretty unanimously agreed that the 2017 race just had way too many candidates in it and it made it it made debates difficult. It made voting probably more complicated for its members than was necessary just because of how many – by the time we got to the final ballot, there was 14 names officially still on the ballot. Kevin O'Leary had dropped off by mm-hmm. then but it was too late and his name stayed on the ballot. So they want to keep the race they, – they want to keep the field smaller this year um, and that is – will be partly helped along by just the fact that the race isn't nearly as long. It's only about six months this time. But also they've raised the entry requirement. So in the 2017 race, it took $100,000 to get in, of which you got half back as a deposit if you followed all the rules. This time it takes $300,000 and only 100000 is refundable. And what we're told is maybe a, a even harder barrier for candidates to get across is the number of endorsements you need from party members. In total, you'll need 3,000 and they have to be spread across seven provinces. Uh, and they're staggered. So you don't have to get all 3,000 at once, but you need 1,000 just to get in the mm-hmm. race and then 1,000 to get the party's membership list and then another 1,000 to qualify for the final uh, ballot. So it, getting that many signatures spread across the country from party members who are all members in good standing, fully paid up and everything is a difficult task. And so it should keep the field pretty small. Now, why is it felt that having these barriers will make for a better race? I understand the idea that kind of having fewer candidates may make for an easier to follow race. And we can touch on that in a little bit, but why do they feel like we have to make sure that the money uh, bar is set really high and the signature bar is set really high. How do they feel that that will help them with a kind of better quality of candidates? Well, I, you know, there's the obvious um, element of just, for example, in a debate, if you have 13 people or 14 people on stage, which you had for all of the debates in the in the 2017 race, it's hard to it's hard to properly get through the have a full debate of the issues because it just takes forever to give everybody a chance to speak but i think there's there's also a phenomenon that happens sometimes where people kind of seem to get in the race knowing they have no chance of winning but just kind of to raise their own profile and i think a lot of people in the party feel like that's not helpful in a leadership race you want people who are really competing in this to win and if not to win to at least really raise one particular important issue and as opposed to people who are doing it almost for 
you know, maybe not for fun, but for self-promotional reasons or just not as a serious candidate. At the end of the day, you want a race that has serious candidates, people who are in this for the right reasons. And having a high barrier to entry um, helps ensure that. Now that the race is underway, the rules have been set. Uh, have there been any candidates who had kind of declared interest in participating uh, who are now saying, whoa, I'm dibs out. I This is too rich for me. There's one one candidate has done that so far, a businessman from uh, the Ottawa area. His name's Brian Brulot. He's, I guess, been a volunteer in the party for a long time. I've never talked to him before, but, um, you know, otherwise not a name that is well known, at least outside of a small circle in Ottawa. He had already, he had announced back in December he wanted to run. He had a very fully fleshed out policy document, but uh, decided uh, just today, put out a press release saying that the the given the entry requirements, he's dropping out and endorsing Peter McKay. Uh, there's other people out there who have expressed interest in running, who are not well known people. I suspect that most of them will not get in, but you know we'll see. The deadline is February 27th, so there's still more than a month for people to make a final decision. Now, when we say that they want to have a smaller race, what what do you get the sense the ideal number of candidates is for the leadership of the party? If the idea that 13 or 14 is too many, and I'm sure that if any listeners uh, have been following the, the U.S. Democratic primary, it just is kind of a gong show with the number of candidates that they've had. What kind of is the ideal race here? Well, yeah, it's hard to see what an ideal is. I mean, probably somewhere around in the around a half dozen, maybe a once you start to get into double digits, that's when things get really difficult. The But, you know, the way that it works in the Democratic race is that candidates drop out once they – when it just becomes – usually when it becomes unaffordable for them to stay in, when they just are not raising the kind of money that they need to run a proper campaign. In the last – twenty in the 2017 race, there wasn't really any mechanism like that. Once you got in, the, the all the the requirements you had to meet were low enough – that there was never sort of a big deadline near the end of the race that you had to meet to stay in it. That's what's changed this year is that there's staggered deadlines. There's The final deadline comes in March where you have to pay again. You have to bring another the final batch of signatures and another uh, big financial fee. And it's every, when you approach those deadlines – um, that is where the field should winnow. You know, it's not, it doesn't cost very much just to get in at the very beginning. It's only $25,000, mm-hmm. you know, still a lot of money, but relatively speaking for a leadership campaign, you can get in for $25,000 and a thousand signatures, but then you need to progressively meet these deadlines that come along. And so I think even if people get in the race, not as a super serious candidate, it'll be hard for them to stay in it. And that wasn't really true in 2017. Is there anyone kind of considered a front runner who these rules would tend to help? I don't think so in terms of the – well, I mean it definitely helps people who have a lot of profile, people who uh, can attract the party's big fundraisers. And the way you often raise money in these races is you hold an, a ticketed event where the ticket costs um, – you know, close to the maximum donation amount. So I think that's somewhere around $1,600 right now. And the more you hold an event like that and people who really want to see you or come to your event or, or just show their support for you um, pay that money and that's how they donate to your leadership campaign. So if you have a big name, that helps, right? And that that's true no matter 
uh, that's true just in general of raising money to be able to run a good campaign. But when you have an entry requirement uh, that has $300,000, that's a serious amount of money to raise. And so it helps big name candidates. Same thing with collecting party signatures is um, you know, if you're if you're trying to sign people up uh, on the other end of the country from where you live, it helps if the people there have heard your name before. And that's not necessarily true outside of a group of, you know, very well-known politicians. Now, looking ahead to the race, you know, there's been a lot of talk about different candidates, Peter McKay, Jean Charest, Rona Ambrose. You kind of get a sense that a good chunk of the the final group of candidates, once they've all officially declared, and I know that uh, not everybody who I mentioned has officially declared yet, correct? Rana Ambrose is still the big question mark there. And uh, there's a lot of people yeah. who think she's probably not going to run. We're, okay. we, we have not yet had confirmations from from any of the big names, actually, though we're very sure that Pierre Polyev and Aaron O'Toole will run. And we're not sure yet, but we think Jean Charest and Peter McKay will probably run. Now, so you have you have names like Peter McKay and Jean Charest and Aaron O'Toole. They seem to be pretty middle-of-the-road conservatives, like kind of closer to the center than to the right. The fact that you could get kind of the bulk of candidates marking the same territory, does that help a guy like Pierre Polyev who... At least in terms of tone and uh, ferocity, uh, and presumably politics as well, may skew a little to uh, the right of those other candidates. Does that give him more ground to run on? I think it probably helps Pierre Polyev a lot. I think that he is much more of the red meat conservative as compared to um, those other candidates that you mentioned. There, there was a thinking for a while that only one of Peter McKay or Jean Charest would get in the race because they would be fishing from the same pool, both in mm-hmm. terms of fundraising, uh, staff, uh, but also um, uh, just voters, right? Uh, they're both seen as establishment Tories, pretty centrist. And Aaron O'Toole, I would kind of say, is, a, is I would say is a pretty centrist guy as well. Peter Pierre Polyev will be much more of if you're looking for a more hardline conservative and it's hard to say what he may tack a little bit to the center but given that the center is so crowded already i suspect that pierre will try to um car keep the right the more you know conservative hardline conservative side of the party and there's a lot of conservative party members who hold those views pierre will will i imagine try to keep that ground to himself. And in fact, some of the centrist candidates may need to move in that direction a little bit. Right. I mean, one other thing I was curious about, in a race like this, when we talk about having uh, people with big names, people with a track record uh, in public life, um, it may be easier for them to get in the race. But does that potentially hurt them during the race? That the idea that a guy like Pierre Polyev, who may not be known to many Canadians is able to attack some of those other candidates on some of the negatives that may be on their record. Like the one that that stands out to me is the the whole uh, helicopter controversy with Peter McKay when he was out on a hunting trip and and had to have a helicopter come pick him up. And there was a big controversy around that a few years ago. Is that the kind of thing that that can help a Pierre Polyev? Well, right. I mean, if you're if you're a well known politician and you've been in if if you've been in politics in in important positions for a long time, you 
almost certainly have baggage. And if you don't, you're either very lucky or just extremely good. Uh, Peter McKay is baggage. The guy who's got a ton of baggage, if he gets into the race, is Jean Charest, which it makes it fascinating that he's considering running. Um, you know, first of all, there's the fact that he was a Quebec liberal mm-hmm. premier. Before that, he was a federal progressive conservative leader. But, you know, so not only do people associate his name with liberal politics in Quebec, but of course, you know, Quebec had a massive corruption scandal. He was premier and a huge inquiry into it. And there's lots – I think the other campaigns will go after Jean Charest very heavily over his uh, experience in politics and the fact that he does come with a lot of baggage. What kind of issues do you think that we might hear about over the next couple of months? Like, it, Will it be a case that you know, the, the 2017 campaign focused on all the things that we want to focus on as a party, but the messaging was just all wrong? Or do you think that we're going to get some sweeping new vision – of what the conservative party can be. Is the party ready for that kind of kind of big directional change at this point? I think that there will be some debates that are have the potential to be big debates about the soul of the party um, that are that conservatives have dis- disagreements about and I think that will probably come out during the race. The most obvious one is environment issues and specifically the carbon tax, but not just the carbon tax. The question of how the party presents itself publicly when it comes to climate change and the environment because the conservative uh, conservative leaders all say now, at least in the federal party, they do believe climate change is happening and that something should be done about it. It is a massive question whether that is a carbon tax or not and there's still a lot of um, people in the party who will never support a carbon tax and uh, it is a big question whether any leadership in the party, anybody who be, who gets elected as leader of the party can get elected on a platform supporting the carbon tax. I'm not sure. I think that that will be a, a very obvious and, and crucial debate during this leadership race. And the other area that I think the conservatives will need to reckon with is the question of, of finances and deficits, because the liberals are currently winning the argument that you can run a government with endless deficits that they've won now two elections. I mean, the first election, they did promise to balance the budget and then walked away from that very quickly afterwards. This election, they didn't, They did not even have a promise to balance the budget anytime soon. And so for the conservatives, you have to ask yourself the question, do we care about deficits? Do we care about balancing the budget? And if so, how do we position that during an election campaign Against the liberals who will say that we're, you know, that the conservatives are looking to um, cut programs, cut, sp- cut, you know, cut spending or raise taxes because that's the only way ultimately you would get back to a balance at this point. It's a huge question for the conservative party. And so I do think there's a potential for uh, big uh, party changing debates like that. Do we know how many debates we're going to see? No, I was talking to a party official yesterday who said Uh, So there's a subcommittee that is um, focused on putting together debates. They could theoretically decide not to have any official ones and just let other groups, you know, local riding associations or media outlets organize debates. I suspect the party will organize at least a couple. There's Mm – they organized five in 2017, but that was a year and a half long leadership race. In six months, I'm sure we're not going to get five. I would guess we get maybe two, maybe three 
And uh, But I'm sure that other groups will also organize debates. So there was no shortage of debates last time. There was something like 15. So uh, I'm sure that we'll get lots of chance to see the candidates up on stage. And again, the debates will, will be much uh, easier to manage and more watchable, I would say, if we've got a half a dozen candidates instead of 14. Now, looking ahead to uh, the vote day on June 27th in Toronto, you know, in 2017, there was, what was it, 13 ballots. Uh, Andrew Scheer went from being uh, polling with 21% support on the first ballot to uh, eking out a, a small majority over Maxime Bernier on the final ballot. As the party looked at a different voting system or or are there is it going to be the same or are they changing things up? The voting system is uh, largely laid out in the party's constitution. And so uh, uh, unless you have a big convention to change it, you can't change the voting system. So things okay. like having a ranked ballot um, and providing for members to mail in votes and having one member, one vote uh, – weighted by riding, so you can't just have all your members in one riding. But um, all that stuff is set in the party's constitution. So I, as far as I'm aware, the voting system is basically unchanged from how it worked last time. So it's essentially the the party members will rank their choices, um, then they'll tally up the votes and all the first place ballots on the, on the first round, and whoever's at the lowest will fall off, and then they'll look to that ballot's that person's ballot second place votes for the next round and how that Yeah, I mean it, 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 it goes until one candidate gets 50%. So if somebody gets 50% okay. on, in the first round, then there are no other rounds. But otherwise, mm-hmm. somebody drops off each time until somebody gets 50%. And in the case of 2017, that didn't happen until the very final ballot. But that's not necessarily – doesn't have to be the case. You just need to get over 50%. Yeah. Do you do you get the sense that there may be a couple front runners uh, in this race, and then you know a handful of also rands who are just trying to make it interesting or trying to make a name for themselves? You know, it, it is obvious right now who the highest profile candidates are, assuming they get into the race, uh, which would be Peter McKay and Jean Charest and Rana Ambrose if she decides to get in. Which I'm not it's, at this point; it's not looking very likely. Aaron O'Toole and Pierre Polyev are well-known, at least fairly well-known uh, in the party. Probably not, you know, there'll be people across the country who are not, who still will know Peter McCain, Jean Charest better. The other, the only other candidate we know for sure who's in right now who has a much lower profile is Marilyn Gladue, who's um, an MP from southwestern Ontario, who has only been an MP since 2015, so has not been in the party very long and was... Um, worked uh for a chemical worked in chemical engineering for uh i think almost three decades before this including at large global firms like dow chemical um so has a lot of private sector experience but not a lot of public experience we'll get a social conservative candidate i feel pretty certain somebody from the pro-life movement who is probably very little known but the the pro-life movement does bring out votes and so that person Mm -hmm. will you know in the 2017 campaign that was an mp it was brad trost i don't think it's going to be an mp this time although suppose you never know but brad trost finished fourth place last time so the pro-life the pro-life movement organizes its vote very well and so i'm sure they'll have a candidate at some point um there's there's other smaller smaller profile names that are out there but it's really especially given the high entry requirements it's hard to say if very many more of them will get in. 
All right. Well, I guess we'll we'll look to see how this unfolds over the next few weeks. Uh, Brian, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. 10-3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Brian Platt. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.